0: It's almost time. Time for what? Time to get the crazy socks out of sock drawer.
1: Why would I be doing that?
0: Because it's Crazy Socks for Docs Day on Friday. Do you reckon you've got some crazy socks that you can wear, (laughs) Francine?
1: Probably somewhere. But I love the idea of, um, you know, how some people get their pets printed onto their socks.
0: That'd be pretty cute. I could get some frogs done. Um, I'm thinking about some yellow and blue duck socks, or these are my favourite ones, uh, socks with socks printed on
1: them. That sounds like some severe sock This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crumans. And I'm Felicity Nelson. And this week we're bringing you some interviews from the AMA conference in Brisbane. But first, you have a bit of news you wanted to share, Felicity?
0: Yeah, well apparently freshly squeezed fruit juice is actually quite deadly. I'm sorry, what? Okay, it's not deadly per se, but every glass of fruit juice that you add in to your day increases your chance of dying over six years by 24%. So that's if you're an older American with obesity.
1: (laughs) So, okay, most of us at least wouldn't fit into that category. But why is it so bad? That sounds like it's just as bad as Coke or terribly sugary soft drink. Um,
0: Yeah, so this was from a paper published in JAMA Network Open. Um and the reason this makes sense is because the sugar content of a fruit drink is about the same as a can of coke. Um and just because the sugar came from a tree doesn't mean that it doesn't look like fructose or glucose in your body and it gets processed the same way and it's just as bad for your health um it turns out. But to be totally fair, the absolute risk of death was still quite low. So it was
1: about 0.08%. Um but still I thought it was quite interesting. <laughs> Because I guess it's super concentrated. So in some ways, it would also be really bad for you if you ate 20 apples in a day. Would that be the equivalent to drinking a can of Coke as well? Yeah,
0: but no one does that. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I um, accept your challenge.
0: <laughs> and we're, and the RACGP and obesity policy coalition said we shouldn't have a sugar tax on fruit juice um, because apparently the guidelines say a little bit of fruit juice is okay. But uh, sugar tax on everything else, I say.
1: That's really good to know. I'm definitely going to think twice about ordering juice in the future, but let's get back to the AMA conference. You were there last week. I've never been to one myself. Uh, How did you find it?
0: Yeah, it was my first AMA conference too. And I was just so relieved and excited to see such a heartfelt and practical discussion occurring around doctor mental health. Um, And so I've actually interviewed Melbourne cardiologist Dr. Jeff Toogood for today's podcast. He's the one who founded Crazy Socks for Docs, and he won the AMA Presence Award at the conference for his work.
1: Yeah, it's very well deserved. Uh, I believe Crazy Socks for Docs is now global. It's very active on Twitter and especially will be this Friday as people start to post photos of their crazy socks in clinic.
0: But before we get to that, here's another AMA winner, GP Dr. Alan Lee, with this week's Hot Topic.
2: Yes, thank you, for steam My hot topic is just the safety of vaccinations and just a real reassurance for the Australian immunisation providers and also the Australian public, just with regards the safety of vaccination and the safety of our immunisation programme and some of the work that we're doing in the background to try and ensure safety of vaccination in Australia. So, as you know, my story goes back to 2010 when due to a single vaccine, there were a number of children that presented with adverse events. And since that date, immunization in Australia and adverse event surveillance has changed significantly. Today, we monitor all vaccines delivered in our Sentinel sites, which now number close to 300 sites across Australia. And we monitor all vaccines at all ages in this age group. Um, To date we have monitored close to 2 million different vaccine antigens and this is across well over 1 million encounters. So we monitor these vaccines actively, we've collected extensive data on the adverse events associated with any vaccination and we centrally collate and analyse this data. So our system runs uh, that we've, we have our tool SmartVax installed locally at each practice. Um, three days after an immunization, the tool automatically extracts data and will send out an SMS to that parent inquiring whether there was any reaction to the vaccination Um If there was a reaction to that vaccination, a further SMS will be sent inquiring if that reaction was medically attended or not, which we flag separately. And in addition to this, we send parents, uh, or parents and immunization recipients, a smartphone survey which they complete on their phones uh, takes them less than two minutes and we extract uh, an extensive amount of data related to the nature, duration, severity and, and importantly the outcome of that vaccination reaction. So all of this data is then uh, fed back into the local practice, um, local installation of this tool. And then from there, we upload totally de-identified data to our central servers. And from here, we send our data through to OSVAC Safety, who perform an extensive and rigorous analysis and reporting on that data.
0: The AMA conference in Brisbane today, catching up with Dr. Jeff Togood, the founder of Crazy Socks for Docs and a cardiologist based in Victoria. So it was really great to hear you talking today at the AMA conference about doctors' mental health. And you spoke very openly about some of your darkest times, times where you were needing to seek help yourself and how this sort of turned into this movement of Crazy Socks for Docs. Do you want to share a little bit about that story, sort of the origin story of these, this crazy sock movement?
3: The crazy socks movement started at a time when I was um, actually recovering and starting to feel better. But I, in the days when I'd been very unwell, I'd bought some brightly colored socks just to try and cheer myself up. Uh, I also bought a dog um, and he rummaged through my washing and ate quite a lot of socks. So I only had a pair of odd socks to wear to work, which I did uh, and that, because of my previous mental health issues, because I had mismatched socks on, um, started a conversation behind my back that I was going off again, you know, clearly, if you can't get your socks matched, how can you do anything else? Even though I was actually well. And that kind of irritated me, and I, I wanted to, I, I, I needed to try and come up with a plan to try and turn that around into some positive, you know, um, some positive, and about 12 to 18 months later, I thought, look, maybe we should just wear these odd socks and push directly back against what was exactly said to me. And I got a few friends to take some photos. We just posted it on social media and it went viral. And uh, in the first year, it gained much more traction last year and we're running more panels and discussions and it's going to get more dis- more traction this year around the world.
0: And what were some of the takeaways from the panel discussion today? What was your way of wrapping that up?
3: I think it's there's a lot of things that need to be done. It's a long and difficult process. There's first the work that the individuals need to do, but I think individuals are doing a lot of work themselves. I think we've seen that we need to reduce the stigma in doctors' mental health and, and getting help. We need to make the institutions take a lot more responsibility in the sort of well-being of their, their staff. I think... We also created, you know, there the were people in the audience that, that had bereaved relatives and they, they see great hope in what we were doing and it's such a big panel, such an open discussion that's continuing the movement. That's also good, I believe.
0: So what are the craziest socks you've ever seen?
3: I think the winner last year in the, in the unofficial competition was the was the then Health Minister of Victoria and our Attorney-General, the Honourable Jill Hennessy, who wore... most amazing chicken feet socks. Uh, I don't think anyone could compete with her her effort on that day.
0: And from drawing from your own experience of going through a really difficult time, what can doctors do to support their colleagues who might be having a hard time?
3: Some of it is to take, you may need to take some of the load of the work at the time, make them not feel they're responsible or they're a burden because they're ill, the workplaces and the colleagues that are in the workplaces need to understand that it takes time to recover from a mental health illness. Just being kind of a, a, a mate in the sense to the your colleague is what you need as well.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. That was um, really good to hear your thoughts and, you. and your feelings and have a good time at the rest of the conference. Thank
3: you. Thank you.
0: Next up, I'm going to catch up with Dr. Michael Myers, a professor of clinical psychiatry at the State University of New York. It was so interesting to hear you talk um, today at the AMA conference about the psychology of doctors when they go and see another doctor, Mm -hmm. um, particularly addressing their mental health. Do you want to talk to me about what that feels like for a doctor um, to sort of be in that vulnerable position and have to make that transition from being the doctor to the patient. Okay,
4: I'm glad you used the term vulnerable because that's the way it feels for so many physicians. And of course, it depends on whether or not this is a very acute thing, say they're acutely ill, they're in in a hospital emergency room or something like that. That's very different than if they've been sort of ailing for a while and then make the decision that they need to go speak with a mental health professional. First of all, what I generally find is that they do feel as you said very vulnerable Um, they're not in their usual role which is something we're all comfortable with generally being a doctor we prefer that as to being in the so-called patient role so they may be anxious because they're not exactly sure uh, what we might be like and especially if we're a complete stranger what I usually find though is that by the end of the consultation usually the, the doctor feels so much calmer and just they just feel relieved that they've made the decision to put their care into the hands of someone else and let that individual help them get well. So it works, and it, but it just takes a little time to, so to get through that initial anxiety.
0: You've talked about this idea of um, mistrust, inability to accept the patient role, self-blame for becoming ill. Do you want to talk me through some of those okay. those yeah. feelings?
4: Yeah. See, that's the other thing about our... It's not... Um, there's, there's such a long history in medicine of doctors putting their own personal needs last. And and in the early days, I mean, we're, we were kind of raised that way in a sense that you know, and it was embedded in the Hippocratic Oath. And some people take it literally that you put your patient's needs before your own constantly. The other thing, too, is that some of them feel like they're bothering someone. So it isn't unusual. I'd get a phone call saying, hey, Dr. Myers, my name is Dr. Brown. I'm sorry to bother you, which I find an interesting statement. And sometimes they'll want to get better super quick. They'll say, because I know you've got other patients to see. And I say, look, at, you've still got 35 minutes here. So, But I'm done talking. I said, we'll find something. Trust me.
0: And the other thing you talked about was the other side of the equation. So the doctor who is the doctor's doctor yes. also has a kind of odd experience, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit tense um, for them to sit down with a colleague and, yes. and take on that role yeah. of being the doctor. Yes. So do you want to talk yeah. to me what that feels like?
4: Yeah, and that takes a little time. Uh, I think I'll never forget my first patient, for instance, but it gets easier as you look after more and more doctors. But when you realize that despite the individual's credentials who's come to see you, at this, at this time in their life, they're in need, they're, they're hurting, or they're quite depressed, and they are really looking for your expertise. And um, I think once you can sort of get beyond that, and just try to treat the patient as I say, like any other patient who just happens to be a physician, the the better it will go, and they will be, as Dr. Schultz mentioned, just so very grateful for the for the care, and especially as they get to start to feel better.
0: Um, excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I understand you've got to run off and do some other media interviews, so. Okay. Thank you and I hope you have a good time in Australia.
4: Thank you so much for the interview, I'm delighted to be here.
0: Last but not least, I managed to catch Dr. Tony Bartoni, the AMA president who had a very busy time at the conference but made time to speak to us. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
5: Good morning, how are you?
0: I'm good, how are you doing? Good, good. There was a lot of talk at this conference about doctor health and wellbeing. Um, that session, panel session yesterday was really interesting where we heard from a lot of experts. Um, what is the AMA planning to do this year to protect doctors' health and well-being?
5: So that session was no accident. It was specifically put on the agenda by myself in response to what we've seen happening and not, uh, in terms of both events in both of personal experiences but also in terms of what i feel has been a stagnation in the advocacy and in the response of meaningful programs and uh, opportunities to actually improve the system so we've, we've we no doubt have all been aware of all the the media reports, the personal stories, being touched by either people we've known, met, or aware uh, as acquaintances through some of our part of our medical training and life in, in medicine. And the unfortunate stories in this space, we're all saddened extremely by the loss and the grief, but we need more than sadness, we need more than grief, we need more than frustration. We need to actually start doing We've had announcements in this area in terms of policy, we've had announcements of funding. It's actually time now to see the rubber hit the ground with meaningful opportunities to actually improve.
0: So with the federal election resulting in a majority Liberal government, I imagine the AMA is going to be putting some ideas to the government and uh, putting the pressure on them to uh, keep the AMA's agenda on the top of its list. So... What are some of the things that you're planning to talk to the Liberal government about?
5: I've had discussions with uh, uh, the, the caretaker uh, minister, Minister Hunt, uh, specifically uh, in that post-election environment indicating that clearly um, we will con- we continue to remain very, very engaged on all the issues that we release. So if we go back a step in the lead up to the election, straight out uh, when it was called we released our, 20, uh, our key election issues, uh, federal election document for 2019, 21 issues, 40 pages, very clear, very concise, and very very specific uh, request to improve our health system. And even the because the even though the expectation of a change of government did not venture, it doesn't mean that our health issues have gone away. They remain exactly what they were. So general practice was number one on my list. Before the election, it still remains number one, and the and the, the prime uh, the minister has indicated that, uh, but in conversations and also in the video that was screened here yesterday uh, at conference, we know that he you know there is a lot more work to be done um, uh, in in. The transformation, the transformation and, and re- reform activity that we're trying to in, in, um, enlist in terms of funding into general practice. Today we'll have a motion that actually looks to enshrine further um, a dedicated moiety of the health budget in general practice and increasing it at the same time. We, you know, we know that from experiences around the world, you will get a larger, a a more significant return on your investment if you invest in general practice than any other part of your health system.
0: Um, Well, I couldn't agree with you more about the need for particularly um, more funding in primary prevention and primary care. Um, And I understand there's some policy debates happening right now. Sorry to keep you from those, but thank you so much for coming on the show. It was, it was really great to hear your insights.
5: Not a problem. Thank you very much for the opportunity. There's so much that could be said that it's really hard to sort of concisely put that together and in, in the short space of time, but rest assured, we will continue to advocate for the outcomes for our patients and for the profession to ensure that they can continue to deliver the high quality care that Australian community, and Australian patients rely upon.
6: Are you passionate about the potential of technology, but frustrated by its complexity and untapped potential in primary care? Wild Health is a one-day summit happening in Sydney on the 25th of June that brings together healthcare professionals and informatic experts in order to tackle the biggest issues facing digital health. This is your chance to hear from and question Australia's thought leaders, innovation mavericks, key decision makers and contrarians from inside the digital health sector and beyond. Participate in a day of engaging, meaningful debate and discussion, along with some great networking opportunities over cocktails and canopies. At Wild Health, you'll hear from the directors and leaders of GP software patient management systems, like. Best practice and Medi records. Check out our full agenda and get your ticket at wildhealth.net.au. Wild Health, because innovation can't be tamed.
1: Next up, we've got our quirky historical fact. So,
0: these days, to tell if you're pregnant, it usually requires peeing on a stick, but it turns out that women have been peeing on things to tell if they're pregnant for millennia. Tell me more. So, around 3,500 years ago, in ancient Egypt, women would urinate on bags of wheat and barley, and if either sprouted, it would mean that the woman was pregnant. Um, And so if the barley sprouted first, that signified a boy, and if wheat germination occurred, that meant that a girl was on the way. So incredibly, the test actually worked about 70% of the time, um, which is pretty good for ancient medicine, I think. Um, And they they did an experiment in 1963 with seeds in petri dishes and found that the urine of pregnant women promoted growth more than the urine of non-pregnant women. Uh, and it's thought to work because the higher levels of oestrogen in pre- pregnant women's urine stimulate sea growth.
1: But I'm imagining, Felicity, this isn't a gardening segment, so where is this historical fact going?
0: Yeah, they weren't using pregnant women to promote their agriculture, I don't think, but I haven't checked. But this pregnancy test, the ancient Egyptian one, couldn't tell you the sex of the foetus accurately. We'd have to wait several
1: thousand years before NIPT was invented. But it does seem the ancient Egyptian method stuck around though, and it appeared in a book of German folklore in the 17th century. So women kept peeing on things right through the Middle Ages and into modern times. So, in Europe, the piss prophets of the 16th century declared that a woman was pregnant by examining the colour of her urine. A text printed in
0: 1552 describes the urine of a pregnant lady as clear, pale lemon colour, leaning towards off white, having a cloud on its surface.
1: And another test around this time involved mixing wine with urine. And this one may have been a little bit more successful, as alcohol does react with some of the proteins in pregnant women's pee. (laughs) (laughs) that's
0: it for this week's show as always keep in touch via twitter or email i'm at frogs and
1: stars and francine's at frankie crimmins and we've also got some nice tweets from our listeners this week Um, one of them said at medical republic thanks for using the noun pneumococcus rather than inappropriately using the adjective pneumococcal
0: we do like to be very careful with our bacterial nouns on this show. It's a it's very serious matter. <laughs> it is very important to us. And next week, Frankie has a fascinating story about how malaria medication triggered abnormal dreams, nightmares and insomnia in Australian soldiers working in Papua New Guinea. Um, but apparently it's still being prescribed to at-risk patients. I'm really interested to hear how that story turned out.
1: Yeah, I've still got a little bit of digging to do, but it will be with you next week.